Chapter Twelve of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Crake. Chapter Twelve. As the summer advanced, Olive Rothsay and her new friend, sanctioned by the elders of both families, took long walks together, read and practiced. Not that Olive practiced, for she had no voice and little knowledge of music, but she listened to Sarah's performances for hours, with patience if not with delight. And when they talked—oh, what talks those were! Now, reader, be not alarmed lest we should indulge you with the same. Go back into your own repertoire of early friendships, and that will suit us quite as well. Still, we may just say that these young friends flitted like bees over every subject under heaven, and at last alighted on the subject most interesting at their age—love. It is curious to note how the heart first puts out its tendrils, and stretches them forth toward the yet unknown good which is to be in after-life its happiness and its strength. What folly of parents! to repress these blind seekings after such knowledge, this yearning which nature teaches, and which in itself involves nothing wrong. Girls will think of love whether or no. How much better, then, that they should be taught to think of it rightly, as the one deep feeling of life, not, on the one hand, to be repressed by ridicule, nor on the other to be forced by romance into a precocious growth, but to be entered upon, when fate brings the time, rationally, earnestly, and sacredly. Olive Rothsay found, with considerable pain, that Miss Derwent and she did not at all agree in their notions of love. Olive had always felt half-frightened at the subject, and never approached it save with great awe and timidity, but Sarah did not seem to mind it in the least. She talked of a score of flirtations at quadrille parties, showed her friend half a dozen complimentary billets doux which she had received, and all with the greatest unconcern. By degrees this indifference vanished under the influence of Olive's more earnest nature, and at last, when they were sitting together one night, listening to the fierce howling of the wind, a little secret came out. "'I don't like that equinoctial gale,' said Sarah, shyly. "'I used to hear so much of its horrors from a friend I have, at sea.' "'Indeed, who was that?' "'Only Charles Geddes. Did I never speak of him?' Very likely not, because I was so vexed at his leaving college and running off to sea. It was a foolish thing. But don't mention him to papa or the boys." And Sarah blushed, a real good honest blush. Olive did the same, perhaps from sympathy. She continued very thoughtful for a long time, longer even than Sarah. They were not many days in making out between them the charming secret for which in their hearts they had been longing. Both were thirsting to taste, or at least to see each other taste, of that enchanting love-stream, the stream of life or of death, at whose verge they had now arrived. And so, it somehow chanced that, however the conversation began, it usually glided into the subject of Charles Geddes. Sarah acknowledged that he and she had always liked one another very much, though she allowed that he was fonder of her than she was of him that, when they parted, he had seemed much agitated, and she had cried, but they were mere boy and girl then. It was nothing, nothing at all. Olive did not think so, and, contrasting all this with similar circumstances in her pet poems and novels, she wove a very nice romance round Charles Geddes and her beloved Sarah, whom she now began to look upon with greater interest and reverence than ever. 
This did not prevent her reading Sarah a great many lectures on constancy, and giving her own opinions on what true love ought to be, opinions which were a little too ethereal for Miss Derwent's comprehension, but which she liked very much nevertheless. Olive took quite an affectionate interest in her friend's lover, for lovers she had decided that he must be. Not a day passed that she did not eagerly consult the Times shipping intelligence, and when at last she saw the name of Charles Getty's vessel as arrived, her heart beat and tears sprang to her eyes. When she showed it to Sarah, Olive could hardly speak for joy. Little simpleton, she counted her friend's happiness as if it were her own. She kept the secret even from her mother, that is, in the only manner Olive would conceal aught from anyone so beloved, by saying, "'Please, mamma, do not ask me anything.' And Mrs. Rothsay, who, always guided by someone, was now in a fair way to be entirely guided by her daughter, made no inquiries, but depended entirely upon Olive's wisdom and tenderness. Charles Geddes came to Old Church. It was quite a new life for Olive, a changed life, too, for now the daily rambles with her friend were less frequent, instead of which she used to sit at her window and watch Sarah and Charles taking long strolls in the garden, arm in arm, looking so happy that it was beautiful to see them. Who can describe the strange, half-defined thoughts which often brought tears to the young girl's eyes as she watched them thus? It was no jealousy of Sarah's deserting her for Charles, still less was it envy, but it was a vague longing, a desiring of love for love's own sake, not as regarded any individual object, for Olive had never seen anyone in whom she felt or fancied the slightest interest. Yet, as she looked on these two young creatures, apparently so bound up in each other, she thought how sweet such a time must be, and how dearly she herself could love someone. And her yearning was always to love rather than to be loved. One morning, when Olive had not seen Sarah for a day or two, she was hastily summoned to their usual trysting place, a spot by the riverside, where the two gardens met, and where an overarching thorn-tree made a complete bower. Therein Sarah stood, looking so pale and serious that Olive remarked it. "'Has anything happened?' "'Nothing. That is, nothing amiss. But, oh, Olive, what do you think? Charles put this letter into my hand last night. I have scarcely slept. I feel so agitated, so frightened.' And in truth she looked so. Was there ever a very young girl who did not, on receiving her first love-letter? It was an era in Olive's life, too. She even trembled, as by her friend's earnest desire she read the missive. It was boyish indeed, and full of the ultra-romantic devotion of boyish love, but it was sincere, and it touched Olive deeply. She finished it, and leaned against the thorn-tree, pale and agitated as Sarah herself. "'Well, Olive?' said the latter. Olive threw her arms round her friend's neck and kissed her, feeling almost ready to cry. "'And now, dear, tell me what I must do,' said Sarah, earnestly, for of late she had really begun to look up to Olive, so great was the influence of the more thoughtful and higher nature. "'Do? Why, if you love him, you must tell him so, and give him your whole lifelong faith and affection.' "'Really, Olive, how grave you are! I had no idea of making it such a serious matter. But poor Charles! To think that he should love me so very much!' "'Oh, Sarah! Sarah!' murmured Olive. "'How happy you ought to be!' The time that followed was a strange period in Olive's life. 
It was one of considerable excitement, too. She might as well have been in love herself, so deeply did she sympathize with Sarah and with Charles. With the latter even more than with her friend, for there was something in the sincere, reserved, and yet passionate nature of the young sailor that answered to her own. If he had been her brother, she could not have felt more warmly interested in Charles Geddes and his wooing. And he liked her very much, for Sarah's sake first, and then for her own, regarding her also with that gentle compassion which the strong and bold delight to show to the weak. He often called her his faithful little friend, and truly she stood his friend in every conceivable way by soothing Sarah's only parent, a most irascible papa, to consent to the engagement, and also by lecturing the gay and coquettish Sarah herself into as much good behavior as could be expected from an affianced damsel of seventeen. Charles Geddes went to sea again. Poor little Olive, in her warm sympathies, suffered almost as much as the young man's own betrothed, who, after looking doleful for a week, consoled herself by entering, heart and soul, into the gaieties of the gayest Christmas that ever was spent by the society of Old Church. Everywhere Miss Derwent was the belle, and continually did her friend need to remind her of the promise which Olive herself regarded as such a sacred, solemn thing. The love adventure in which she had borne a part had stirred strange depths in the nature of the young girl. She was awakening slowly to the great mystery of woman's life. And when, by degrees, Sarah's amusements somewhat alienated their continual intercourse, Olive was thrown back upon her own thoughts more and more. She felt a vague sadness, a something wanting in her heart which not even her mother's love could supply. Mrs. Rothsay saw how dull and pensive she was at times, and with a tender unselfishness contrived that, by Sarah Derwent's intervention, Olive should see a little more society, in a very quiet way, though for her own now delicate health and Captain Rothsay's will prevented any regular introduction of their daughter into the world. And sometimes Mrs. Rothsay, pondering on Olive's future, felt glad of this. Poor child! She is not made for the world or the world for her. Better that she should lead her own quiet life, where she will suffer no pain and be wounded by no neglect. Yet nevertheless it was with a vague pleasure that Mrs. Rothsay dressed Olive for her first ball, a birthday treat, coaxed by Sarah Derwent out of her formidable papa, and looked forward to by both girls for many weeks. No one would have believed that the young creature, on whom Mrs. Rothsay gazed with a tenderness not unmingled with admiration, had been the poor infant from which she once turned with a sensation of pain almost amounting to disgust. But learning to love one learns also to admire. Besides, Olive's defect was less apparent as she grew up and the extreme sweetness of her countenance almost atoned for her bad figure. Yet, as the mother fastened her white dress, and arranged the golden curls so as to fall in a shower on her neck and bosom, she sighed heavily. Olive did not notice it. She was too much occupied in tying up a rare bouquet, a birthday gift for Sarah. "'Well, are you quite satisfied with my dress, dearest mamma? "'Not quite.' and Mrs. Rothsay fetched a small mantle of white fur, which she laid round Olive's shoulders. "'Wear this, dear. You will look better, then. See?' She led her to the mirror, and Olive saw the reflection of her own figure, so effectually disguised that the head, with its delicate and spiritual beauty, seemed lifting itself out of a white cloud. "'Tis a pretty little mantle, but why must I wear it, Mamma? The night is not cold.' So little did she think of herself, and so slight had been her intercourse with the world, that the defect in her shape rarely crossed her mind. 
but the mother, so beautiful herself, and to whom beauty was still of such importance, was struck with bitter pain. She would not even console herself by the reflection, with which many a one had lately comforted her, that Olive's slight deformity was becoming less perceptible, and that she might, in a great measure, outgrow it in time. Still it was there. As Mrs. Rothsay looked at the swan-like curves of her own figure, and then at her daughter's, she would almost have resigned her own once-cherished but now disregarded beauty, could she have bestowed that gift upon her beloved child. Without speaking, lest Olive should guess her thoughts, she laid the mantle aside, only she whispered in bidding adieu, "'Dear, if you see other girls prettier, or more admired, more noticed than yourself, never mind. Olive is Mamma's own pet, always.' O oh, blessed adversity! O oh, sweetness taught by suffering! How marvellous was the change wrought in Sibylla's heart! Olive had never in her life before been at a private ball, with chalked floors, rout seats, and a regular band. She was quite dazzled by the transformation thus effected in the Derwent's large, rarely used dining-room, where she had had many a merry game with little Robert and Lyle. It was perfect fairyland. The young damsels of old church, haughty boarding-school bells whom she had always rather feared when Sarah's hospitality brought her in contact with them, were now grown into perfect court beauties. She was quite alarmed by their dignity, and they scarcely noticed poor little Olive at all. Sarah, sweeping across the room, appeared to the eyes of her little friend a perfect queen of beauty. But the vision came and vanished. Never was there a bell so much in request as the lively Sarah. Only once Olive looked at her, and remembered the sailor-boy, who was, perhaps, tossing in some awful night-storm, or lying on the lonely deck in the midst of the wide Atlantic. And she thought that when her time came to love and be loved, she would not take everything quite so easily as Sarah. "'How pleasant quadrilles must be,' said Olive, as she sat with her favourite Lyle watching the dancers. Lyle had crept to her, sliding his hand in hers, and looking up to her with a most adoring gaze, as indeed he often did. He had even communicated his intention of marrying her when he grew a man, a determination which greatly excited the ridicule of his elder brother. "'I like far better to sit here quietly with you,' murmured the faithful little cavalier. "'Thank you, Lyle. Still, they all look so merry. I almost wish someone had asked me to dance.' "'You dance, Miss Rothsay, what fun! Why, nobody would ever dance with you!' cried rude Bob. Lyle looked imploringly at his brother. "'Hush, you naughty boy! Please, Miss Rothsay, I will dance with you at any time, that is, if you think I am tall enough.' "'Oh, quite! I am so small myself,' answered Olive, laughing, for she took quite a pride in patronizing him, as girls of sixteen often affectionately patronize boys some five or six years their junior. You know you are to grow up to be my little husband." "'Your husband,' repeated Bob, mischievously. "'Don't be too sure of getting one at all. What do you think I overheard those girls there say, that you looked just like an old maid, and indeed no one would ever care to marry you because you were—' Here Lyle, blushing crimson, stopped his brother's mouth with his little hand, whereat Bob flew into such a passion that he quite forgot Olive, and all he was about to say, in the excitement of a pugilistic combat with his unlucky cadet, in the midst of which the two belligerents, poor untaught motherless lads, were hurried off to bed. Their companionship lost, Olive was left very much to her own devices for amusement. Some few young people that she knew came and talked to her for a little while, but they all went back to their singing, dancing, or flirting, and Olive, who seemed to have no gift nor share in either, was left alone. 
She did not feel this much at first, being occupied in her thoughts and observations on the rest. She took great interest in noticing all around. Her warm heart throbbed in sympathy with many an idle passing flirtation, which she in her simplicity mistook for a real attachment. It seemed as if everyone loved, or was loved, except herself. She thought this, blushing as if it were unmaidenliness, when it was only nature speaking in her heart. Poor Olive! Perhaps it was ill for her that Sarah's love affair had aroused prematurely these blind gropings after life's great mystery, so often too early seen unknown and known too late. "'What, tired of dancing already?' cried Sarah, flitting to the corner where Olive sat. "'I have not danced once yet,' Olive answered, rather piteously. "'Come, shall I get you a partner?' said Sarah carelessly. "'No, no, everyone is strange to me here. If you please, and if it would not trouble you, Sarah, I had much rather dance with you.' Sarah consented with a tolerably good grace, but there was a slight shadow on her face which somewhat pained her friend. "'Is she ashamed of me, I wonder?' thought Olive. "'Perhaps because I am not beautiful. Yet no one ever told me I was very disagreeable to look at. I will see.' As they danced, she watched in the tall mirror Sarah's graceful floating image and the little pale figure that moved beside her. There was a contrast. Olive, who inherited all her mother's love of beauty, spiritualized by the refinement of a dawning artist soul, felt keenly the longing regret after physical perfection. She went through the dance with less spirit, and in her heart there rung the idle echoes of some old song she knew. I see the courtly ladies stand, with their dark and shining hair, and I coldly turn aside to weep, oh, would that I were fair. The quadrille ended, she hid herself in her old corner, and Sarah, whose good nature led her to perform this sacrifice to friendship, seemed to smile more pleasantly and affectionately when it was over. At least Olive thought so. She did not see her beautiful idol again for some time, and feeling little interest in any other girl, and none at all in the awkward old church beau, she took consolation in her own harmless fashion. This was hiding herself under the thick curtains, and looking out of the window at the moon. Sarah's voice was heard close by, talking to a young girl whom Olive knew, but Olive was too shy to join them. She greatly preferred her friend the moon. "'I laughed to see you dancing with that little Olive Rothsay, Miss Derwent. For my part I hate dancing with girls, and as for her, but I suppose you wanted to show the contrast.' "'Nay, that's ill-natured,' answered Sarah. "'She is a sweet little creature, and my very particular friend.' Here Olive, blushing and happy, doubted whether she ought not to come out of the curtains. It was almost wrong to listen. Only her beloved Sarah often said she had no secrets from Olive. "'Yes, I know she is your friend, and Mr. Charles Getty's great friend, too. If I were you I should be almost jealous.' "'Jealous of Olive! How very comical!' And the silver laugh was a little scornful. "'To think of Olive's stealing any girl's lover! She who will probably never have one in all her life, poor thing. Of course not. Nobody would fall in love with her. But there is a waltz I must run away. Will you come? Presently, when I have looked in the other room for Olive. Olive is here, said a timid voice. Oh, Sarah, forgive me if I have done wrong, but I can't keep anything from you. It would grieve me to think I heard what you were saying and never told you of it. Sarah appeared confused, and with a quick impulse kissed and fondled her little friend. "'You are not vexed or pained, Olive?' "'Oh, no, that is, not much. It would be very silly if I were. But,' she added doubtfully, 
I wish you would tell me one thing, Sarah. Not that I am proud or vain, but still I should like to know. Why did you and Jane Ormond say just now that nobody would ever love me? Don't talk so, my little pet, said Sarah, looking pained and puzzled. Yet instinctively her eye glanced to the mirror where their two reflections stood. So did Olive's. Yes, I know, she murmured. I am little and plain and in figure very awkward, not graceful like you. Would that make people hate me, Sarah? Not hate you, but—well, go on. Nay, I will know all," said Olive firmly, though gradually a thought, long subdued, began to dawn painfully in her mind. I assure you, dear, began Sarah hesitatingly, that it does not signify to me or to any of those who care for you. You are such a gentle little creature we forget it all in time. But perhaps with strangers, especially with men who think so much about beauty, this defect— she paused, laying her arm round Olive's shoulders, even affectionately as if she herself were much moved. But Olive, with a cheek that whitened, and a lip that quivered more and more, looked resolutely at her own shape imaged in the glass. "'I see as I never saw before. So little I thought of myself. Yes, it is quite true, quite true!' She spoke beneath her breath, and her eyes seemed fascinated into a hard, cold gaze. Sarah became almost frightened. Do not look so, my dear girl. I did not say that it was a positive deformity." Olive faintly shuddered. Ah, that is the word. I understand it all now. She paused a moment, covering her face. But very soon she sat down, so quiet and pale that Sarah was deceived. You do not mind it, then, Olive. You are not angry with me, she said soothingly. Angry with you? How could I be? Then you will come back with me and we will have another dance. Oh, no, no!" And the cheerful, good-natured voice seemed to make Olive shrink with pain. Sarah, dear Sarah, let me go home! End of chapter 12